Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Hey, guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. Had a bit of rest and relaxation last week. I was in the sunny place for shady people, Florida. Had a great time there. But man, now the whole world seems to be in flames. In Israel, Hamas has launched a murderous and unprovoked attack on civilians where they were burning and beheading babies, toddlers. They're using rape as a weapon of war, I guess. They've taken Americans hostage. Our president still hasn't called for the release of Americans. I'm not surprised on that. Incompetence on every front and just the barbarity of these modern day Nazis. Yes, Hamas, Nazis, Jew killers, Jew haters. I call out evil when I see it. Hamas is evil. Islamic Jihad is evil. They're interchangeable. The Taliban, they're all interchangeable. Monsters. All of them. Do not stay silent on this. Say Hamas are murderers. Say they are evil. This is just, I don't know, several days into this war, and it seems like most mainstream media is already turning the tide to focus against Israel. I don't know how that could be. But this is not mom and dad's Edward R. Murrow newscast, guys. It is something else entirely, and it does have a mission. The news has a mission. Just like in the 1930s in Berlin, the news has a mission, and it's the same mission. Dehumanize one race of people for later extermination, and that's what's happening. This news media is simply corrupt. It's all Fugazi. All right, guys, sorry about that. That was a long preamble. I know it was kind of vicious. Very upset today. But I wanted to touch base on the Karen Reed case, guys. I meant to release an update episode last week before I departed for Florida, but I kind of ran out of time. And since I've been back... I'm recording here today on Friday, October 13th. I didn't realize it was Friday the 13th. That might explain my mood. So on the 11th, Aiden Kearney of Turtle Boy News was arrested at his house after putting his kids on the bus. And I think everybody here in the New England area knows Turtle Boy, Aiden Kearney, pretty well. He runs a blog called TB Daily News. And he's been a fixture on the Karen Reed case. Quite frankly, he is the only person covering this case in any, and I mean absolutely any amount of detail. And 
if anybody has changed the fortunes of Karen Reed in Massachusetts, it's Aiden Kearney. And I don't think anybody can even argue that. And if you need a primer on this case, we covered this in a three-part series, I don't know, maybe five episodes or so ago. And we have an interview in, I believe, the second or third of that series, guys. And this case has taken on a life of its own. But actually, more recently, when they arrested Turtle Boy, they took his phone and his computers at the house. So all of his sources, all of his source material is kind of up in smoke. And if somebody was communicating with Aiden Kearney, and people have been, including myself, my name is on his computer. My name is on his phone. So I do believe that when they conduct this search warrant, they have all the items with them at the lab. They're going to be trying to find out who said what to Aiden because his sources are impeccable. He talks to everyone. He talks to some of the same people I do. I have some people in corrections I correspond with who also are very friendly with Turtle Boy. So there is a bit of a crossover, and I wouldn't like any of my messages in the hands of the state. And let me tell you, they would never do this to a mainstream news reporter. They'd never do this to Kevin Cullen at the Globe. They'd never do this to anybody at the Boston Herald. Gretchen Voss, I think, at Boston Magazine has a lot of correspondence with Turtle Boy. He's whipped the state police and the district attorney's office into such a frenzy that they're violating the very Constitution they've sworn to uphold, guys. So the charges are serious. I see people online laughing about them. It's not funny. It's eight felony charges of witness tampering, you know, to various degrees and, you know, different individuals. I think a lot of these counts will be whittled down pretty quickly. They also tried to put massive restrictions on his reporting, as if taking his laptop, phones, and all that wasn't enough. They tried to restrict him from reporting on this case at all. Naturally, the judge knows that's a First Amendment violation. So they asked for a pretty high bail. They got no bail. They did get some restrictions on Turtle Boy contacting the Alberts and the McCabes in this case. And Turtle Boy has just posted a video, and the video basically says that somebody appears to currently be using a spoof app on your phone. So you call in on your number, and the number calls out on, say, Aiden Kearney's number. So they do that to one of the witnesses, right, that Aiden is prohibited from contacting, and it looks like to a patrolman, right, that that's a violation of his bail. So he's theorizing that people are trying to set him up for an arrest, particularly during the weekend. So at a minimum, he'd do Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and in court on Monday. And I believe he's probably on track with that. I do have some knowledge of these spoofing cards and websites and all that as my work as a private investigator. And they're pretty sophisticated. It would take a pretty smart cop to figure out what was going on. 
Aiden said in this video that he had printed out all of his commercial activity on his phone, all of his commercial and personal activity on his phone. So if the cops come, he can show them it wasn't his outgoing call. It was, in fact, a spoofing service. But I don't know. You tell that to the state police. The state police are up in arms for what he's done to them. He's made them look like fools, really. This is one of the world's worst police investigations. And I'm going to get into it during this update. I can't believe charges haven't been dropped to this point. And you know what, guys? I can believe it. I can believe it. You want to know why? Massachusetts. Now Aiden Canny has upset the Massachusetts matrix, and it's turned against them. Aiden Canny also theorizes that the contact he had with Brian Alpert, the homeowner at 34 Fairview in Canton, Mass., he now lives, after selling the house at a loss, he now lives in a neighboring town, which is in another county. So he believes they may be trying to set him up for separate witness tampering charges against Brian Alpert in that jurisdiction so he could be arrested and do the perp walk again. I don't think Aiden Canny's arrest is going to provide the Commonwealth what it thinks it's going to provide. I think it's going to put more eyes on this case. And the more eyes on this case, the better, because this was the worst police investigation I've ever seen or an outright setup. I'm sorry. I wish it wasn't so. I wish it wasn't so. And it's going to be very difficult to shore up the local police departments and the mass state police if this case goes the way I think it will or is. Don't forget, guys, there is a federal grand jury convened on at least what appears to be police corruption in this case. People are being interviewed. It seems to have been going on for months, and I would assume it's coming to its end. And I think there's going to be some indictments, and I think they're going to be pretty heavy. So Aiden might be set up for an I told you so moment. He's had many of them in this case already. And I understand people shy away from Turtle Boy. Sometimes he's a bit overpowering. He just is. He's a guerrilla journalist. But he is the only one who furnished any real information on this case. And you got to give him credit for that, right? You got to give him credit for that. You know, it's funny, guys. I had a discussion in Florida with somebody at a sunny gin mill about this case, and they were against Turtle Boy. And my response was, show me in this case, in the Karen Reed case, where he's been wrong. And they couldn't do it. I don't think anybody really can. One of the things, guys, I'm getting weary of is being called a conspiracy theorist in this case. Yeah, it is a conspiracy. It was a conspiracy to cover up a murder of a Boston police officer. There was many people involved in a common cause. That's a conspiracy. Yeah, it's a theory. It hasn't been proven yet. But, man, the Commonwealth's case looks very shaky. And at that last hearing, at that last court hearing, Adam Lally, the assistant district attorney, looked like a keystone cop. He just did. 
and the judge wasn't much better. All right, guys. So I know I'm jumping around. Sorry about that. I'm just a little jittery today with this case and what's going on in the world. But this is an outrage what happened to Turtle Boy. And you should be outraged because they could do it to you. And they would do it to you. They've done this to Turtle Boy because he is too effective. Take, for instance, his interview on his blog of Lucky Laughlin. He is the plow driver in Canton who covered the Fairview Ave area, the home where Brian Albert lived. And he was up and down that street. And he said at 2.30 a.m., there was no body on the lawn, right? He says that in Turtle Boy's blog. And guys, this was a tremendous blow to the case. It just was. It made the Massachusetts State Police look like fools. That there's all these experienced guys running a homicide investigation, and they don't look at the plow driver. Probably one of the best potential witnesses you have. And it takes over a year for you to get to him. And the only reason you did get to him is because of Turtle Boy's blog. So yes, they're angry at Aiden Canny. To me, guys, it seems like they've spent more time and have done a better investigation of Turtle Boy than they have of the Karen Reed case, right? They're reporting, you know, that John's hair was found on the bumper. It wasn't even a human hair. And the prosecution knew that, but yet they used the fact that it was a human hair four times after that in those proceedings. They used that theory of the human hair, guys. I'm saying it again. After being told by their own lab that it was not a human hair. I'm a conspiracy theorist, though, right? To me, that board is on a fraud of the court, right? You knowingly lied to the judge. And during that hearing, the judge never even asked him, well, what about it, Mr. Lally? What about this hair that's not really a hair? She asked no questions. None. So the genesis of the charges against Aiden Candy seemed to stem from this rolling rally that he had done through Canton. And he went to the McCabe's house. He went to one of the Albert's homes, I believe. He went by the pizza shop. And it seems like these witness tampering charges stem from that. I haven't seen any charging documents as of yet. I thought that'd be up by now. And I think the charges will eventually be whittled down, but he'll still face two or three felony charges. And believe me, if he gets a guilty finding on one of them, they're going to send him to jail. That's a fact. If it was anybody else, they'd walk out the door, but they're going to send a message with Turtle Boy. I guarantee that. So I'm going to try to have Aiden back on the show maybe next week or the week after. I didn't want to bother him during this time. Aiden has set up a defense fund, and I put it in the show notes, and I urge you to donate something if you can. To fight this alone, I don't know. It's going to be tough. He's going to need a legal team, and I'm hoping that he gets it. So donate a couple bucks. See what you can do. But in terms of this podcast, guys, I was going to do a whole update, you know, from soup to nuts, but I think everybody by this point is kind of familiar with the events 
of the Karen Reed case. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through some of the issues that have really stood out to me in this case. And there are many of them. And one of the problems in all this, guys, is picking a place to start because there are many places to start. You could start with the condition of the body, the fact that witnesses weren't separated. All right, let's go with the condition of the body, and I'll take you through a couple of my favorites. So it was January 29th, 2022. Seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it? But it really wasn't. And this is the night that John O'Keefe died at 34 Fairview in Canton, Massachusetts. I think everybody is pretty familiar with the details surrounding it. If not, check out Turtle Boy's site or check out my previous episodes on it. Should be right in the list. So guys, I think we've all seen these horrifying pictures of John O'Keefe in death when he was in the hospital. And he had what is described as, and what I remember people calling it, a puncher's fracture. There may be a nickname for it, but it's basically when you hit somebody and you break a knuckle and just above the knuckle, there is intense bruising. And I believe that was on John's right hand. And also higher up on his hand are all these scabs, which look like to me, fresh dog bites and scratches only on one section of one arm, right? And it looks like dog bites. And I'd have to say, guys, some things are so obvious, they just are. Those are dog bites. And I just don't know what the Commonwealth is thinking. They've sent DNA testing of those wounds out to the lab. We haven't gotten anything back from the labs on this. If there's canine DNA in there, the case is over. You know, at least for Karen Reed. For Turtle Boy, I think it would continue. John also had bruising of the outer eye. He had a two inch gash, and I mean gash, guys, and you can go look at these photographs. They're everywhere. But that's a big gash. It is almost dead center in the back of his head, like he was hit from behind. And that opened up quite a cut. And head wounds bleed like a sieve. So you can imagine that. So I believe the cause of death was hypothermia and head injury. So what I'm thinking, what the defense alleges is John O'Keefe was killed inside the house. Everybody was ushered out of the house. John O'Keefe was placed on the lawn where he's found the next morning dead. And just to stick to the condition of the body... There was light bruising on his eyes. And yes, they say that can happen through a head injury, but not like this. The typical bruising I've seen and heard about from a head injury are raccoon eyes. Does it have to be that extreme? Probably not. But he's got that box's fracture and he's got that section of his forearm and bicep all torn up. Some look like parallel teeth marks. Some look like scratches. And I'd say it's a combination of both. And when they saw that, that should have set off alarm bells that this was not a hit and run. Because if she struck him with that 4,000 pound vehicle, guys, 
and now they say it was going 24 miles an hour, there would have been bruising on whatever side was struck. They're seemingly saying his head was struck by the vehicle only. I don't see how that is even a possibility. Just his head is struck? Then what happened to his arm? What happened to his bicep? I guess at one point, the prosecution said, oh yeah, he had a missing cocktail glass from the bar, implying that's how those scratches got there. And the defense kind of scoffed at it. I just don't know how they're going to explain those wounds. At one point, I think Wendy Murphy, a local attorney, had opined that he'd got caught up in a plow guys on just one side of his arm. And it's just not congruent, right? Because if you're struck in the torso and even fall back and hit your head, you'll have your legs through your torso. I mean, you're just going to bruise up. It would be pretty clear if you were struck front or back. I think there'd be tremendous bruising. I think a 4,000-pound vehicle traveling at 24 miles an hour would leave a hell of a lot more indication of a car accident than this. There'd be road rash. And there's all these foolish theories coming out of the prosecutors. To be honest with you, that gives me a lot of pause because you expect the defense to do almost anything to keep their client out of jail for the rest of their life. But you don't expect that from the prosecutors, shading the truth, outright lying, using evidence like the hair four times after you knew it wasn't a human hair. I don't like to see that from the prosecutors. People want the prosecutors to be the good guys. In this case, they're not. So I did see a guy by the name, I think, Kevin on Yellow Cottage or something like that on YouTube. People were talking about it in one of the Facebook groups I'm in. But he did a recreation of the automobile, Karen's Lexus SUV, backing up to 24, 27 miles an hour and striking John. And I got to tell you, it is the most juvenile, far-fetched, non-scientific thing I've ever seen in my life. And this guy seemingly believed it and had changed his mind from Karen Reed's innocence to being guilty, I think, because of this animated recreation that bore no footing in reality. And it was laughable and juvenile, and I couldn't believe it. But it's online. I'm not going to put it in the show notes. It's too ridiculous. Now, guys, make no mistake. There are some high-level private investigation shops that specialize in accident investigation and recreation. And back in the old days, you used to have to do these investigations with drag sleds and all this other stuff. Now it's just super high tech. I wonder if the Commonwealth will invest in that because it just seems so ludicrous, this theory, and they've changed the theory. At one point, they've said that Karen was conducting a three-point turn and struck John. They threw that out when they looked into it more that John would have been hit on the other side of his body, I guess. And this change in the charging document saying that she drove straight 
at him in reverse at 24 miles an hour, that seems almost equally implausible, no? Because it's a loud vehicle. She's got a big SUV. And John's just going to stand in the middle of the road. How long had he been standing there? Because there were two witnesses, including one of the McCabe's, who say that she left, you know, and there was no problem. There was no body on the lawn. And it just goes against their witness statements. So just in conclusion on the issue of the condition of the body, those appear to be dog bites to me. If they're confirmed to be dog bites, this case is over because that means John got into the house and there's really no plausible explanation for those bite marks or what appears to be bite marks on his bicep. They don't even attempt to explain that puncher's break or the boxes break on his right hand above his ring finger knuckle. You know, it looks like he's been in a fight. And the placement of the cut on the back of John's head, I don't understand how they think that could happen through being struck by a car. There's no other bruising, right? He could have been hit from the back, but I think there'd be a hell of a lot more injuries, right? So that's where I am with the condition of the body. Those look like dog bites to me. And I'm going to say they are dog bites. I've been bitten by a dog. And I've seen other photographs of people bitten by a dog. You get those canine teeth, those two large teeth. And that's what you see on John's body, on John's bicep. And there's some scratches and they're deep and they're fresh. And they didn't even investigate it. They didn't even attempt to investigate that. That's going to bite the prosecution in the ass because at a minimum, the defense is going to say this was a rush to judgment. You see these wounds and you didn't even investigate them. That's partially true. They had set an agenda in their head. They knew these people. These were good people, Brian Albert. The McCabe's were good people and Proctor knew them. And that was his mistake. He thought they were telling the truth. They were not. They are not. The second issue, guys, that jumps out at me in this case are Jennifer McCabe's text messages. And don't forget, she also deleted phone calls, right, before she handed her phone over to the state police. So why would you delete your phone log? Why do you delete your phone log at that time? It's just purely coincidental that a Boston cop died almost in your presence. Come on, come on. I can't remember the last time I've deleted any phone calls from my phone library. Like, why do you have to do that? Why would you have to do that? She had a reason to delete them. She had a reason to delete those calls. And they didn't even ask her about it. Why did you do it? Why did you delete all those calls, right? They didn't ask Jen McCabe that question because their case against Karen Reed would fall apart, right? That's why they didn't ask the question. So guys, everybody points to the infamous 2.27 a.m. text, how long to die in the cold. That is pretty monumental. It is. I'm going to go over it a little bit more. 
what those deleted calls, if you did nothing wrong, right? Why would you delete those calls at that specific time? Why would you do that? There's a reason there. What's the reason? They don't even ask. The defense is going to ask. And I don't know what the answer is going to be. I think the answer is going to be, I take the Fifth Amendment. Okay, guys, so the 227 AM text, how long to die in the cold? It was misspelled, horribly misspelled. I don't know what information was returned from Google in response to that. But Jen McCabe, in the morning after John O'Keefe's body was found, gave her phone to Trooper Proctor, I believe it was, And even the Commonwealth's forensic phone examiner comes up with this on the second go around. On the first go around, they conveniently don't come up with that. The reason we know about it today is because the defense contacted a high powered forensic vendor to do the phone. They specialize in telephone forensics, cell phone forensics, and this easily came up. And then it easily came up when another forensic examiner from the state redid it, you know, because you're saying we missed something. They go back and do it again. And there it is. How long to die in the cold? So seemingly the Commonwealth concurs that Jen McCabe did Google how long to die in the cold. And then one thing that people seem to forget later She attempts to Google it again after getting Karen Reed to wonder how long it would take you to die in the cold. And Chen McCabe says to her, oh, you want me to Google that? The problem was the first search was so misspelled, which I'm thinking was due to Jen McCabe's alcohol intake. It came up as two different searches. She thought the second search would overwrite the first. It doesn't work like that, and it's going to bite them in the ass. You know, that's just my opinion. That's my opinion here. So, yes, I guess I should say that nobody else has been convicted. Karen Reed's the only one charged here. So this is, I guess it's speculation, but it's seemingly easy speculation because a state police forensic examiner comes up with that search too, right, at some point. So why would you Google how long to die in the cold? From the statements McCabe had given, she says John never came into the house and she believed he decided to go home. Matt McCabe reports seeing Karen Reed's car outside 34 Fairview and he says she drives off in a normal fashion. So Jen McCabe's story is that He doesn't come into the house. John O'Keefe doesn't come into the house and he leaves with Karen. So you would think John went home and went to bed. So why are you Googling how long to die in the cold and then somebody's found dead in the cold? I don't know. I think Sherlock Holmes novels, they call that a clue. That may be a clue, no? That there's something wrong in this case. They didn't want anything to be wrong. They didn't want to investigate to ruin a good story, right? 
What happens when Jen McCabe has to testify about this? What is she going to say? She might have to take the Fifth Amendment to protect herself from future criminal charges. If that happens, if that happens in open court, this case is over. And if they even think it's going to happen, they'll have to dismiss this case, I think. They can dismiss it with prejudice or without prejudice. Without prejudice means that they can refile charges. If Jen McCabe thought that John O'Keefe went home and went to bed, why was Jen McCabe up pacing all night? Because her fitness tracker showed her walking around her house. Some would say pacing, right? Some would say she knew somebody was dead or dying in the cold. That's why she wanted to know how long do we have to leave the body out there? Allegedly, right? That's some hairy stuff. And the state police breezed right past it. And it's going to bite them in the ass. All right, guys. So we have covered the condition of the body, the 227 AM text, and the deleted phone calls. The last thing I want to touch on before I let you go is a trioka of witnesses, Lucky Lawfren, Matt McCabe, and Jennifer McCabe. Lucky Lawfren, guys, was tracked down by Turtle Boy, not the state police. The state police put in one of their reports that the area was plowed by Another friend of this whole consortium in Canton who had a plowing business. That wasn't the case. And Canton DPW knew it, but they weren't going to get involved. If the police didn't ask, they weren't volunteering anything. They told Lucky Lawson not to talk to any reporters about this case. But he talked to Turtle Boy and he told him the truth. He told him that he didn't see a body. He would have seen a body. He's up and down the street all night plowing. And the last time he went by was about 2.30 a.m. And there was no body. He is going to be a difficult witness for the prosecution, right? Because he's just a guy who takes pride in his job. And they were trying to harass him. And I don't think he liked it. And he's going to tell the truth. And Lucky just seems like a working class guy, a straight shooter. And I think that's going to come over to the jury. And don't forget, you only need one juror. If one juror believes there was no body at 2.30 a.m. on the lawn of 34 Fairview, Karen Reed is innocent, right? Because if there wasn't a body, if he is accurate and he appears to be and he is adamant, there was no body there. Karen Reed is innocent. It's kind of a strange case, guys, because all they really have to prove is John went into the house. If they can prove that, Karen Reed is innocent. And I think they're going to be able to prove it. And I guess I should have said four witnesses, a foursome. Lucky Lawfren, which I just mentioned. Jen and Matt McCabe, that's three, and Ryan Nagel. Ryan Nagel wasn't part of this party. He apparently wasn't drinking. His sister had asked to be picked up at 34 Fairview, and he appears to have gotten there almost at the same time as Karen Reed and John. 
And when he pulled up, you know, he says his lights were on that vehicle. There was one person, a woman in the driver's compartment with nobody else in the car. So what would that mean? It would mean John had got there and already run into the house. Don't forget, he didn't have a winter's coat on and it was horrible out. And Brian would have seen another person in the car, right? They just would have. And he reports that Karen Reed was the only person in the vehicle. Matt McCabe reports that he saw Karen Reed arrive in the SUV and leave a short time later driving straight out of the neighborhood. So when they had the theory, guys, of a three-point turn, I'm like, Matt McCabe would have seen that. And probably Mr. Nagel would have seen that as well. But they didn't. Throw that in with Lucky Offer, who says there was no body there. This just looks like a shitty investigation. I don't know how you even got to probable cause on this. Unless they're going to come up with some forensic evidence of Karen Reed hitting him. I mean, the black box in the car. We haven't heard much about that. But the theory now is Karen reversed at 24 miles an hour for, I don't know, almost a quarter mile or so, I think. A little less than a quarter mile in a straight line. And they claim she was under the influence and smashed in to a guy who was six foot two and 217 pounds. Do you know what that impact would be like? I think there'd be a hell of a lot more damage, a hell of a lot more damage to that vehicle. And I know I don't have to be a doctor to know there would have been a hell of a lot more damage to John's body. He would have been bruised you don't come up with a bruise after being hit by a 4,000-pound vehicle. Come on. I mean, it just gets laughable when you look into it more deeply. It's laughable. I think I've covered those witness statements, and they're conflicting, right? Because they say, you know, Nagel says John had to be in the house. Basically, if you read through it, if you look through it logically, if John wasn't in the vehicle, he had to be where? In the house. Because if he's outside the house, Ryan would see that. So I think what happened in the house happened very quickly. I think there was a street beef. I think the dog got involved. I think that Boxer's fracture of his arm shows he was in a street beef and the dog attacked him. And then somebody hit him from behind when he was on top of a family member. And then he's unconscious. He's bleeding. And they don't know whether they want him to live or die. And they chose it's better that he dies. You know, allegedly, that's the defense's theory, right? That's the defense's theory. Sounds plausible. It sounds more plausible than being struck by a vehicle going in reverse at 24 miles an hour and not having any bruising on your body. That's huge, guys. Just as a little addendum here, the post-event behavior of Brian Albert appears to be off the wall. Gets rid of his dog, sells his house at about $50,000, less than asking price when most people are in a bidding war, especially in Canton, Massachusetts. He had his basement redone, although 
just four years previously, he had it built up. Why would you do that? That's not normal post-incident behavior, right? He doesn't even look out his window. There's a dead cop on his lawn. Is that normal post-event behavior? I don't think it is. Rehoming that dog, guys, a family pet that he had for years, would you get rid of your family pet if he didn't attack someone in your house? I wouldn't. Why would you? It's just odd. Absolutely odd. And I think the prosecution's going to have to answer for it. I'm thinking, though, what's going to end up happening is there's going to be some indictments on the federal level that will put the kibosh on this case. And it couldn't come soon enough, quite frankly. Those are just four or five items I'm thinking about off the top of my head. And it's crazy. But guys, I'm going to leave you there. I don't think Karen Reed is guilty in this case, and they're certainly not going to be able to prove it with the evidence they have now, and they should not proceed any further. The prosecution is starting to look like liars, and that just defames the whole system. It reduces the whole system in the eyes of the public. You have to have confidence in your courts, or you'll have just total disregard of law enforcement, and then you'll have vigilantism. So not a good course we're on here. I think they're going to have a real hard time explaining the Lucky Laughlin aspect of this. I think that's really going to hang them up. And I think that's where the state police moved from aiding Kenny is a pain in the ass to we have to stop this guy. And now they sort of have. They're trying to. They arrested him. And the reason they did that was Aiden interviewed Lucky. And Michael Proctor hadn't for a year. A year. This is a murder investigation. They're trying to put a woman in the can for the rest of her life. And they don't even interview the people who were around the house all night long. It's not going to survive. This case will not survive. All right, guys, so I've just checked Aiden Kearney's defense fund, guys. I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's already up to $45,000, and it's a set goal of $100,000. He may need more than that, quite frankly, but he's about halfway to his goal. Donate something if you can. This is an injustice. Aiden Kearney was arrested because he made the Massachusetts State Police look like fools in the district attorney's office. And they're the matrix, brother. And once you cross them, you know what they're looking to do. All right, guys, I'm going to leave you there. Check the show notes to donate to Turtle Boy, and we'll see if we can get him on the show perhaps next week or the week after. And other than that, that's all I have for you. And I'll get on to the next one, and I'll see you on the flip side. You dig? You dig?